64. Of life. Love, in short, is a tyrannical influence which none can escape, and however metaphysicians may define the passion, it appears to me that it is wholly dependent on the mysterious a few words about young ladies. A young lady, I mean one who has but recently thrown aside her dolls, is a bashful blushing little puppet, who only acts, speaks, and moves as mamma directs. She is a statue of flesh and blood, not yet animated by the Promethean fire chrysalis, which may one day become a beautiful butterfly, fluttering on silken wing amidst a crowd of adorers, but she is yet only a chrysalis, pale and cold, and wrapped up in a thousand conventional restrictions, like a mummy in its swaths, the very young lady is usually prodigiously careful of her little self, she regards men as her natural enemies, poor innocent, this absurdity is the fault of her education. They have made her believe that love is the most abominable, execrable, infernal thing in existence. They have taught her to lie and to dissimulate her most innocent emotions. But the time is not far distant when the natural impulses of her heart will break down the barriers that hypocrisy has placed around her. Woman was formed to love, she must obey the imperious law of her being, and will love the moment her inspirations for the bell passion become stronger than her reason. I may add, also that when a young lady discovers a tendency this way, it may be safely conjectured the object on which she will bestow her favor is not very distant. The author's division of his system, it has been a long-established axiom that there is but one great principle of love, but then it assumes various phases, according to the thousands of circumstances under which it is exhibited, and which, to speak in the language of philosophy, it would be impossible to synthesize. Time, place, age the very season of the year, the ruling passion, peace or war, education, the instincts of the heart, the health of the body and the mind if it be possible for the latter to be in a sane state when we fall in love, the buoyancy of youth or the decrepitude of old age, these, and numerous other causes which I cannot at present enumerate, serve to modify to infinity the form and character of the sentiment, thus we do not love at eighteen as we do at forty, nor in the city as we do in the country nor in spring as we do in autumn, nor in the camp as we do in the court, nor does the ignorant man love like a learned one, the merchant does not love like the lawyer, nor does the latter love like the doctor, it is upon these different phases in the character of love that I have founded my system, next week I shall endeavor to describe some of the traits which distinguish the lover, till then, fair readers, I remain your devoted slave, witness my grant's meditations among the coffee cups, we had long considered ourselves the funniest dogs in Christendom, and, in the plenitude of our vanity, imagined that we monopolized the attention and admiration of the present and the future. We expected to be deified, and thus become the founders of a new mythology. Punch must be immortal, but how shorn of his pristine splendor, how denuded of his fancied glories. For the John Bull has discovered Grant's lights and shadows of London life. Wretched as we must be at this reflection. We generously resort to our scissors, and publish our own discomfiture. In alluding to the author's description of the London dining room, the John Bull remarks, it will bring comfort to the savage bosoms of the late ministry, for whose especial information we must make a few more extracts, concerning coffee houses, or shops, as they are mostly termed, coffee shops, the second class of coffee houses, and those I have particularly in my eye are altogether different from those I have just mentioned. The prices are remarkably moderate in most of these places, the charge is no more than three halfpence for half a pint of coffee, or threepence for a whole pint. The price of half a pint of tea is twopence, of a whole pint fourpence, 
if you simply ask bread to your tea or coffee, two large slices, well buttered, are brought you, for which you are charged tuppence, or should you prefer having a penny roll, or any other sort of bread, you can have it at the same price as at the baker's, in most coffee houses, you may also have chops or steaks for dinner, if the party be a rigid economist, he may, as regards some of these establishments, purchase his steak or chop himself, and it will be prepared gratuitously for him, but if that be too much trouble for him to take, and he prefers ordering it at once, he will get, in many houses, his chop with bread and potatoes with it for sixpence, and his steak for ninepence or tenpence, these coffee houses have many advantages over hotels, besides the great difference in the prices charged, in the first place, there is not so much formality or affected dignity about them, and they are far better provided with means of rational amusement, and the promptitude with which a customer is served is really surprising. Are not these passages declarations of the individual, winding himself up with tuppenny worth of cheese, pleading for the additional penny for the waitress, whose personal charms and obliging disposition must be considered to extort the amount, and above all, unable to conceive any motive, except aversion to trouble, for disliking to carry his chop upon a skewer through the streets of London, how every line revels in the recollection of having dined, and speaks how seldom, while the well-buttered bread infers the usual fare, still it is not meanly written, there are a glorying and exultation in every word that redeem it, and show the author is more to be envied than compassionate, though a little further on we perceive the shifts to which his homeless state has reduced him, meditation in London, you can order, if you please, a cup of coffee without anything to it, and, for so doing, you may sit if you wish for five or six hours in succession, I have said that coffee houses are excellent places for reading, I might have added, for meditation also, for in like public houses, there are no noisy discussions and disputes in them, all is calm, tranquil, and comfortable, the beverage, too, which is drank as a beverage, as I before remarked in a previous chapter, cheers, but not inebriates, the remarks are generally equally original, and the facts, no doubt in some degree truths, are all alike humorous, the more so when the aspect of the book and the names of the respectable publishers suggest the higher class of readers to whom it is addressed, little anecdotes are interspersed, concerning Harriet, of Coventry Street, who didn't mind her stops, and James, behind the mansion house, who knew everybody's appetite, that enliven the descriptive portions of the work, which is in its very inappropriateness the more amusing, and cannot be read without reaping both information and instruction on topics which no other author would have had the temerity to discuss, but these are only words, let punch, the rival of this Caledonian Esmodus, do justice to the man whose character is stamped on every page of his own, who yet is above penny, poor, yet full of enjoyment, humble, yet glorious, ignorant, yet confident, the money market, Tim is 14 per CWD, in London, and this, allowing a fraction for wear and tear, gives an exchange of 94362070 H's in favor of Hamburg, the money market is much easier this week, and bills play bills were to be had in large quantities, a large capitalist who holds turnpike tickets to a large amount, caused much confusion by letting some pass from his hands, when they flew about with alarming rapidity, several persons seemed desirous of taking them up, but a rush of bulls from Smithfield rendered this quite impossible. Whitechapel script was done at 000 premium, but in the course of the day 000 discount was freely offered. This was settling day. 
when many parties paid the scores they had been running at the cook shop opposite, there was only one defaulter, and as it was not anticipated he would come up to the mark, for he had been chalking up rather largely of late, nothing was said about it. A dictionary for the ladies. Punch. Solicitous to maintain and enhance that reputation for gallantry towards his fair readers which it has ever been his pride to have merited, has much pleasure, not unmixed with self-congratulation, in thus announcing to the loveliest portion of the creation the immediate appearance of a dictionary entirely and exclusively for their use, in which the signification of every word will be given in a strictly feminine sense, and the orthography, as a point of which ladies like to be properly independent, will be studiously suppressed the whole to be compiled and edited by an ADAME punch, to which will be appended a little manual addressed confidentially by punch himself to the ladies, and entitled 10 minutes advice on the care and use of a husband, or what to ask, and how to insist upon it, so that the obstreperous bridegroom may become a meek and humble husband, specimen of the work, husband, a person who writes checks, and dresses as his wife directs, duck, in ornithology, a trust bridegroom, with his giblets under his arm, brute, a domestic endearment for a husband, marriage, the only habit to which women are constant, lover, any young man but a brother-in-law, clergyman, one alternative of a lover, brother, the other alternative, honeymoon, a wife's opportunity, horrid, hideous, terms of admiration elicited by the sight of a lovely face anywhere but in the looking glass, nice, dear, expressions of delight at anything, from a baby to a barrel organ, Appetite, a monstrous abortion, which is stifled in the kitchen, that it may not exist during dinner. Wrinkle, the first thing one lady sees in another's face. Time, what any lady remarks in a watch, but what none detect in the gross. Soup, the L.A.J.U.L.I.N. A correspondent of the Sunday Times proposes to raise 10,000 for the benefit of the laboring classes, in the following manner, upon a prima facie view. My suggestion may appear impracticable but I am sure the above amount could be raised for the benefit of the laboring classes by one effort of royalty an effort that would make our valued queen invaluable, and, at the same time, afford the ministry an opportunity of making themselves popular in the cause of their country's good. Westminster Hall is acknowledged to be the largest room in the empire, and, with very little expense, might be fitted up with a temporary throne, and see, for promenade concerts, for one, two, or three, days, all the vocal and instrumental talent of the day would be obtained gratis, and her most gracious majesty's presence, for only two hours on each day, with the admission tickets at one guinea, would produce more money than I had mentioned, would the above amiable philanthropist favor us with his likeness, we imagine it would be a splendid political intelligence, Sir Robiardi Peel was observed to put a penny into the hands of the man at the crossing in Downing Street, it is anticipated, from this trifling circumstance, that sweeping measures will be introduced on the assembling of Parliament. A deputation from the Marrowbones and Cleavers waited on Lord Stanley at the Treasury. His lordship listened attentively for some minutes, and then abruptly left the apartment in which he had been sitting. We understand that Colonel Sithorpe intends proposing an economical plan of church extension, that is to cost nothing to the public, for it suggests that churches should be built of Indian rubber by which their extension would become a matter of the greatest facility. It is rumored that the deficiency in the revenue was to be made up by a tax on the incomes of literary men, and a percentage on the profits of Martinezzi will first be levied by way of experiment. Should it succeed, a duty will be laid on the produce of the cloak and the bonnet, the late promotions, 
the whole of the police force take one step forward, on account of the late very liberal brevet, Sergeant Smooks, of the Royal Heavy High Lows, to be raised to the Light Wellingtons, Policeman K482.611, to be restored to the staff by having his staff restored to him, which had been taken from him for misconduct, Corporal Smuggins, 16th foot, to be Sergeant by purchase, Vice Buggins, arrested for debt, all the post captains, who were formerly Tuppenies, will take the rank of generals, in the Thames Navy, to D-Mate Simpkins, of the Bachelor, to be first mate, Vice Anchor, fallen overboard and resigned, all the men who are above the age of 100, and are in the actual discharge of duty as policemen, are to be immediately superannuated on half-pay liberal arrangement, prompted, it is believed, by the birth of the Prince of Wales, Punches Theatre, Norma, OSSIAN, and Paul Bedford, a vestal virgin with a husband and two children, a Roman Lothario, with an Irish friend, a druidical temple, a gong, and an auto DFA. Mix up charmingly with Bellini's quadrille-like music to form a pathetic opera, and sympathetic dilettante weep over the woes of Norma, because they are so exquisitely portrayed by Miss Campbell, in spite of the subject and the music. Such, indeed, is the power of this lady's genius which is shed like a halo over the whole opera that nobody laughs at the broad Irish in which Flavies delivers himself and his recitative. Few are risibly affected by the apathetic, and often out of tune, roarings of Pollio in which stronger testimony could not be cited of the triumph of Miss Campbell, for solely by her influence do those who go to Covent Garden to grin, return delighted, but Apollo himself could not charm away the rich fun that pervades the English adaptation, nor the modest humor of its preface, it has been, hitherto, one characteristic of the lyric drama to consist of verse, rhyme has been thought not wholly dispensable, those, however, who are familiar with the writings of Ocean, and the works of the Covent Garden adapter, will, according to the preface, at once see the fallacy of this, rhyme is mere, jingle, rhythm, rhodomontade, meter, monstrous, versification, villanous, in short, Ocean did not write poetry, neither does this learned prefacier so it's all nonsense, to burlesque such a work as, Norma, then, is to paint the lily, to gild refined gold, to caricature Lord Morpeth, or to attempt to improve punch, yet the opportunity was too tempting to be wholly overlooked, and a hint having been dropped in one of our pencilings, an Adolphi scribe has acted upon it, an enlarged edition of the work may, therefore, now be had at half price, a heroine of six foot two or three in her sandals, with a bass voice, covers the stage with tremendous strides, and warbles out her wood notes, being a druid as she worships the oak, wild, with a volume of voice which silences the trombone, and makes the wide sound asthmatic. In short, the great feature is Mr. Paul Bedford. The children he brings forward are worthy of their parentage. Polly was made a most killing Roman relay by Mrs. Grattan, but Norma's attendant does not speak Irish half so richly as the Covent Garden Flavies. But, above all, commend we Mr. Wright's Adelgaisa. It is a masterpiece. All the airs and graces of the prima donna he imitates with a true spirit of burlesque. As to his singing, it astonished everybody, and so did the introduction of All Round My Hat, a most unnecessary interpolation, for the original music is quite as droll. Punch, O are the London C-H-A-R-I-V-A-R-I, Volume 1, for the week ending December 18th, 1841, The Physiology of the London Medical Student, 12, of the College, and the Conclusion.
Our hero once more undergoes the process of grinding before he presents himself in Lincoln's Inn Fields for examination at the College of Surgeons. Almost the last affair which our hero troubles himself about is the examination at the College of Surgeons, and as his anatomical knowledge requires a little polishing before he presents himself in Lincoln's Inn Fields, he once more undergoes the process of grinding. The grinder for the college conducts his tuition in the same style as the grinder for the hall often they are united in the same individual who perpetually has a vacancy for a resident pupil. Although his house is already quite full, somewhat resembling a carpet bag, which was never yet known to be so crammed with articles, but you might put something in besides. The class is carried on similar to the one we have already quoted, but the knowledge required does not embrace the same multiformity of subjects, anatomy and surgery being the principal points. Our old friends are assembled to prepare for their last examination in a room fragrant with the amalgamated odors of stale tobacco smoke, varnished bones, leaky preparations, and gin and water, large anatomical prints depend from the walls, and a few vertebrae, a lower jaw, and a sphenoid bone, are scattered upon the table, to a return to the eye. Gentlemen, says the grinder, recollect the petition canal surrounds the cornea. Mr. Rapp, what am I talking about? Mr. Rapp who is drawing a little man out of dots and lines upon the margin of his Quain's anatomy, starts up, and observes something about the padding canal running round a corner. Sir, now, Mr. Rapp, you must pay me a little more attention, expostulates the teacher. What does the operation for cataract resemble in a familiar point of view? Pushing a boat hook through the wall of a house to pull back the drawing room blinds, answers Mr. Rapp. You are incorrigible, says the teacher. Smiling at the simile, which altogether is an apt one. Did you ever see a case of bad cataract? Yes, sir. Ever so long ago the cataract of the Ganges at Astley's. I went to the gallery, and had a mill with, there. We don't want particulars, interrupts the grinder, but I would recommend you to mind your eyes, especially if you get under Guthrie. Mr. Muff, how do you define an ulcer? The establishment of a raw, replies Mr. Muff. Tit, tit, tit continues the teacher, with an expression of pity. Mr. Simpson, perhaps you can tell Mr. Muff what an ulcer is, an abrasion of the cuticle produced by its own absorption, answers Mr. Simpson, all in a breath. Well, I maintain it's easier to say raw than all that, observes Mr. Muff. Pray, silence, Mr. Manhook, have you ever been sent for to a bad incised wound? Yes, sir. When I was an apprentice, a man using a chopper cut off his hand. And what did you do? Cut off myself for the governor, like a two-year-old. But now you had no governor. What plan would you pursue in a similar case? Send for the nearest doctor call him in. Yes, yes. But suppose he wouldn't come? Call him out. Sir. Shaw. You are all quite children, exclaims the teacher. Mr. Simpson. Of what is bone chemically composed? Of earthy matter, or phosphate of lime, and animal matter, or gelatin. Very good. Mr. Simpson, I suppose you don't know a great deal about bones, Mr. Rapp? Not much, sir. I haven't been a great deal in that line. They give a penny for three pounds in Clare Market. That's what I call popular osteology. Gelatin enters largely into the animal fibers, says the leader, gravely. Parchment, or skin, contains an important quantity, and is used by cheap pastry cooks to make jellies. Well, I've heard of eating your words, says Mr. Rapp but never your deeds. Oh, 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 groan the pupils at this gross appropriation. 
and the class getting very unruly is broken up. The examination at the college is altogether a more respectable ordeal than the jalap and rhubarb botheration at Apothecary's Hall, and par consequence, Mr. Muff goes up one evening with little misgivings as to his success. After undergoing four different sets of examiners, he is told he may retire, and is conducted by Mr. Belfour into Paradise, the room appropriated to the fortunate ones, which the curious stranger may see lighted up every Friday evening as he passes through Lincoln's Inn Fields. The inquisitors are altogether a gentlemanly set of men, who are willing to help a student out of a scrape, rather than catch question him into a one, nay. More than once the candidate has attributed his success to a whisper prompted by the kind heart of the venerable and highly gifted individual now. Alas, no more who until last year assisted at the examinations. Of course, the same kind of scene takes place that was enacted after going up to the hall, and with the same results, except the police office, which they managed to avoid. The next day, as usual, they are again at the school, standing innumerable pots telling incalculable lies, and singing and counted choruses, until the Scotch pupil who is still grinding in the museum, is forced to give over study, after having been squirted at through the keyhole five distinct times, with a reversed stomach pump full of beer, and finally uncameled, the lecturer upon chemistry, who has a private pupil in his laboratory learning how to discover arsenic in poisoned people's stomachs, where there is none, and make red, blue, and green fires finds himself locked in and is obliged to get out at the window, whilst the professor of medicine, who is holding forth, as usual, to a select very few, has his lecture upon intermittent fever so strangely interrupted by distant harmony and convivial hullabaloo, that he finishes abruptly in a pet, to the great joy of his class, but Mr. Muff and his friends care not, they have passed all their troubles they are regular medical men, and for aught they care the whole establishment may blow up, tumble down, go to blazes, or anything else in a small way that may completely obliterate it. In another twelve hours they have departed to their homes, and are only spoken of in the reverence with which we regard the ruins of a bygone edifice, as bricks who were. Our task is finished. We have traced Mr. Muff from the new man through the almost entomological stages of his being to his perfect state, and we take our farewell of him as the general practitioner. In our physiology we have endeavored to show the medical student as he actually exists his reckless gaiety, his wild frolics, his open disposition, that he is careless and dissipated we admit, but these attributes end with his pupilage, did they not do so spontaneously, the uphill struggles and hardly earned income of his laborious future career would, to use his own terms, soon knock it all out of him, although, in the after waste of years, he looks back upon his students' revelries with an occasional return of old feelings, not unmixed, however, with a passing reflection upon the lamentable inefficacy of the present course of medical education pursued at our schools and hospitals, to fit a man for future practice, we have endeavored in our sketches so to frame them, that the general reader might not be perplexed by technical or local allusions, whilst the students of London saw they were the work of one who had lived amongst them and if in some places we have strayed from the strict boundaries of perfect refinement, yet we trust the delicacy of our most sensitive reader has received no wound, we have discarded our joke rather than lose our propriety, and we have been pleased at knowing that in more than one family circle our physiology has, now and then, raised a smile on the lips of the fair girls, whose brothers were following the same path we have traveled over at the hospitals, 
We hope with the new year to have once more the gratification of meeting our friends, until then, with a hand offered in warm fellowship, not only to those composing the class he once belonged to, but to all who have been pleased to bestow a few minutes weekly upon his chapters. The medical student takes his leave. A con, that ought to have been the colonel's. When does a schoolboy's writing book resemble the hero of Waterloo? When it's a well ink single quote d single quote un wellington. The, of papers. Chapter III. On my next visit I found Mr. Bales in full force, and loud in praise of some illumosinary entertainment to which he had been invited, having exhausted his subject and a tumbler of toddy at the same time. Mr. Arden availed himself of the opportunity to call attention to the next tale, which was found to be a fatal remembrance. I was subaltern of the cantonment main guard at Bangalore one day in the month of June, 182. Tattoo had just beaten, and I was sitting in the guard room with my friend Frederick Gehagen, the senior lieutenant in the regiment to which I belonged, and manager of the amateur theater of the station. Gehagen was a rattling, care-for-nothing Irishman whose chief characteristic was a strong propensity for theatricals and practical jokes, but withal a generous, warm heart fellow, and as gallant a soldier as ever buckled sword belt, in his capacity of manager, he was at present in a state of considerable perplexity, the occasion whereof was this, there chanced then to be on a visit at Bangalore a particular ally of Fred's, who was leading tragedian of the showering he theatre in Calcutta, and it was in contemplation to get out Macbeth, in order that the aforesaid star might exhibit in his crack part as the hero of that great tragedy. Fred was to play Macduff, and the blood-boltered Banco was consigned to my charge. The other parts were tolerably well cast, with the exception of that of Lady Macbeth, which indeed was not cast at all. Seeing that no representative could be found for it, it must be stated that, as we had no actresses amongst us, all our female characters, as in the times of the primitive drama, were necessarily performed by gentlemen. Now in general it was not difficult to command a supply of smooth-faced young ensigns to personate the heroines, waiting maids, and old women, of the comedies and farces to which our performances had been hitherto restricted. But Lady Macbeth was a very different sort of person to Caroline Dormer and Mrs. Hardcastle, and our ladies accordingly, one and all, struck work, refusing point-blank to have anything to say to her, the unfortunate manager who had set his heart upon getting up the piece, was at his wit's end, and had bent his footsteps towards the main guard, to advise with me as to what should be done in the centaur emergency. I endeavored to console him as well as I could, and suggested, that if the worst came to the worst, the part might be read, but, lugubriously shaking his kaput, Fred declared that would never do, so, after discussing half a dozen tricky no polish routes, with a proportionate quantum of brandy penny, he departed for his quarters, disgusted, as he said, with the ingratitude of mankind, whilst I set forth to go my grand rounds. Next morning, having been relieved from guard, I had returned home, and was taking my ease in my camp chair, luxuriously whiffing away at my after-breakfast cheroot, when who should step gingerly into the room but manager Fred Gahigan. The clouds of the previous evening had entirely disappeared from his ingenuous countenance which was puckered up in the most insinuating manner, with what I was wont to call his borrowing smile, for Fred was oftentimes afflicted with impecuniosity a complaint common enough amongst us subs, and when the fit was on him, in the spirit of true friendship, he generally contrived to disburden me of the few remaining rupees that constituted the balance of my last month's pay. Fred brought himself to an anchor upon a bullet trunk, and, 
after my boy had handed him a cheroot, and he had disgorged a few puffs of smoke, thus delivered himself, this is a capital weed, Wilmot, I don't know how it island but you always manage to have the best tobacco in the cantonment, hem, said I dryly, glad you like it, I say, Peter, my dear fellow, quoth he, Fitzgerald, Grimes, and I have just been talking over what we were discussing last night, about Lady Macbeth you know, yes, said I somewhat relieved to find the conversation was not taking the turn I dreaded, well, sir, continued Fred, plunging at once, in media's raised dot double quote and speaking very fast, and we have come to the conclusion that you are the only person to relieve us from all difficulty on the subject, Fitzgerald will take your part of Banco, and you shall have Lady Macbeth a character for which everyone agrees you are admirably fitted. I play Lady Macbeth, cried I, with my scrubbing brush of a beard, and whiskers like a prickly pear hedge, why, you must be all mad to think of such a thing, my dear friend, remarked Gahagan mildly, you know I have always said that you had the Camblian nose, and I'm sure you won't hesitate about cutting off your whiskers when so much depends upon it, they'll soon grow again you know, Peter. As for your dark chin that don't matter a rush, as Lady Macbeth is a dark woman, the reader will agree with me in thinking that friendship can sometimes be as blind as love, when I say with respect to my, Camblian knows, that the former has been from childhood affected with a decided tendency to strabismus, and the latter bears a considerably stronger resemblance to a pump handle than it does to the classic profile of John Campbell or any of his family, Lieutenant Gahagan, said I solemnly, do you remember how? Some six years ago at Hyderabad, when yet beardless and whiskerless, the only hair upon my face being eyebrows and eyelashes, that your instigation and swayed diabolo, I attempted to perform Lydia Languish in the rivals, and hast thou yet forgotten, O son of an insane father, how my grenadier stride, the fixed teapot position of my arms, to say nothing of the numerous other solecisms in the coat of female manners which I perpetrated on that occasion made me a laughing stock and a byword for many a long day afterwards. All this, I say, must be fresh in your recollection, and yet you have the audacity to ask me to expose myself again in a similar manner. Pooh, pooh, laughed Gahagan. You were only a boy then. Now you have more experience in these matters. Besides, Lydia Languish was a part quite unworthy of your powers. Lady Macbeth is a horse of another color. Why, man, 